0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Arve Hansen, and I'm a researcher at Center for Development and the Environment at the University of Oslo and the leader of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we discuss so-called love jihad controversies and Hindu nationalism in India. Over the past decade and a half, rumors and allegations of Indian Muslim men carrying out so-called love jihad against India's Hindu population have escalated dramatically, particularly within Hindu nationalist discourse. Hindu nationalist activists claim that there is a coordinated campaign in motion where Muslim men seduce and then marry young Hindu women only to convert them to Islam. This, they claim, is a kind of demographic warfare, a love jihad, intended to change the demographic composition of India, and eventually turn it into a Muslim-majority country. Although baseless and unfounded, this trope of India being under threat from love jihad has now become so pervasive that it has found its way into policy and law in many Indian states. To discuss these love jihad controversies and Hindu nationalism in India, we are joined by Alf Nielsen professor of sociology at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, and a leading scholar of Indian democracy and politics. Also with us is Kenneth Bo Nilsson. In addition to being an associate professor of social anthropology at the University of Oslo, and my co-leader in the Norwegian Network for Asia Studies, he's also a regular host of podcasts in the Nordic-Asia podcast series. Welcome, both of you.
0: Thank you, Arve. Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Arve. It's, It's great to be here.
1: So to start with, Where does this idea of love jihad come from?
2: So this is something that Alf and I have written about in a recent article that we published in the journal called Religions, an article that deals precisely with love jihad in in India. So in India, the southern state of Karnataka really played a key role in creating and amplifying this trope of love jihad. One person in particular, Pramod Mutalik, stands out in the early history of love jihad rhetoric in India. He was the leader of an aggressively right-wing Hindutva organization that's called the Sri Ram Sena, And he was reportedly the first to use this term sometime back in 2005. He gave an interview with the Indian magazine called Frontline. And in this interview, Mutalik explained that sometime in 2005, he had caught news that a 65-year-old Muslim man had kidnapped a poor 19-year-old Hindu girl in the state and that she had then gone missing for many months. Now, Mutalik ostensibly looked into this case and also met the parents of the missing girl. And he discovered that there were many cases like this and that there was, in his words, a huge conspiracy. And this was not long after 9-11. And the term of jihad in itself was in wide circulation across the globe. And so Mutalik concluded that what he was witnessing was also a form of jihad. And then he called it love jihad. Now, this concept didn't catch on right away. So later, he wrote a book about it and also produced CDs for distribution as well. This was before social media became so widespread in India as, as it is today. And then later on, the term of love jihad started catching on and also started circulating even more widely in the Indian public sphere, especially after Modi won the elections in 2014, as has also been noted by the famous India scholar Christoph Schaffelot, for example. Now then, a few months after Modi won in 2014, just to give an example of how this spread, there were two weekly magazines that are published by the Hindu nationalist mother organization, the RSS. And both of these magazines suddenly devoted their cover stories to this theme of love jihad. There was one story in the magazine called Organizer and another cover story in a magazine called Janya And from then onwards, different Hindutva organizations have much more aggressively launched what they call a counter-offensive to prevent young Hindu women from being wooed by Muslim men. And this continues today, and we tell at least part of this story in our article.
0: And... As an ideological construct, love jihad is rooted in the long-standing and deep-seated demographic anxieties that are foundational to the politics of internationalism and that have been at play in the politics of internationalism since the early 1900s. At the core of these anxieties, we find the entirely unfounded belief that Muslim population growth will dislodge Hindus from their position of dominance in India. And these anxieties are in turn profoundly gendered. So in Hindu nationalist ideology, it's of pivotal importance to protect Hindu women against the menacing Muslim other. And as feminist scholars such as Simani Banerjee and others have long pointed out, This is just one of many ways in which the imperative of asserting masculine control over the sexuality of Hindu women in the name of the Hindu nation actually manifests. Now, as historian Charu Gupta has shown, moral panics centered on the idea that Muslim men lure Hindu women to convert to Islam date back at least a century, that is to the 1920s. However, activism, vigilantism, and lawmaking, as we're now seeing, against love jihad, take place in an entirely new phase in the development of Hindu nationalist politics, as well as in an unprecedented and profoundly perilous conjuncture in the trajectory of the Indian polity. The defining feature of this phase of development is the rise of the BJP under the leadership of Narendra Modi as a hegemonic force in Indian politics. Now, Modi's rise is closely linked to an authoritarian populism that draws a line between true Indians and their enemies within more significantly, India's Muslim minority. And this line has been drawn in a number of ways, one of which is mobilization against so-called love jihad. So if we look at contemporary mobilization against the supposed love jihad conspiracy, it really comes to prominence in uh, the state of Uttar Pradesh, where the current chief minister, Yogi Adityanath has been actively using this issue to arouse communal tension since the early 2000s. In fact, Love Jihad was one of the main rallying points that Adityanath used to build his organization, the Hindu Yuva Vahini, which is best described as a vigilante outfit with a tremendously wide reach across all districts in the state. Adityanath, because of his role as an incredibly effective organizer, became a valuable political asset for the BJP in the lead up to the elections in 2014, not least because he was able to attract support from lower castes and classes to attract these groups, which had previously been on the outside uh, of Hindu politics, often aligning with lower caste parties, Adityanath was able to attract these groups into the Hindu nationalist fold. So working closely with Adityanath then basically strengthened the BJP's position in Uttar Pradesh and has of course also seen Adityanath himself rise to the very pinnacle of power in the States. And as part of that process, again, the Love Jihad bogey has come to occupy a, a central position in contemporary Hindu nationalist politics.
1: It's interesting that you, you touch upon the role of Love Jihad in Hindu nationalist statecraft. I know that this is something that you've both worked on for some time, namely, as you say, the ways in which some of the core tenets of Hindu nationalism is now increasingly being written into law and in ways that paved the way for a Hindu state. Could you please give us an example of this?
0: Well, we coined the term Hindu nationalist statecraft to try and grapple with what we believe to be a crucial development in Modi's hegemonic project, which, as I mentioned just now, pivots on a politics of authoritarian populism. Now, authoritarian populism is basically a form of politics that will always be based on a narrative that distinguishes between the true people and their enemies. In the case of Modi and the BJP, this line, the dividing line between the true people and their enemies, has increasingly come to be drawn and defined according to the tenets of religious majoritarianism. So the Hindu majority constitutes the true people, while India's Muslim minority is increasingly stigmatized as an anti-national enemy within Initially, this distinction was drawn by means of vigilantism, by means of collective violence as a form of cultural and moral policing. So Hindu nationalist groups would attack vulnerable minority groups above all Muslims. These attacks, which escalated substantially in frequency after Modi first took power in 2014, were carried out in the name of cow protection, but also around issues such as religious conversion and interfaith relationships. However, soon after Modi's re-election in 2019, we began to see a shift in the way that the line between the true people and their enemies is being drawn, as Hindu nationalist claims and Hindu nationalist ideology is increasingly being codified into law. Now, the process that we refer to as Hindu nationalist statecraft began with the abrogation of Kashmiri statehood in August 2019. And the symbolic politics of that legislative move was, of course, very clear. The Hindu nation is to be built by purging Indian territory off the Muslim enemy within. Hindu nationalist statecraft continued with the Supreme Court's Ayodhya verdict in November 2019, which lent credence and legitimacy to the weaponized mythology of the Hindu nationalist movement. And the Ayodhya verdict, in turn, was followed by the introduction of the Citizenship Amendment Act in December 2019, which in combination with a national population register and a national registry of citizens, is likely to reduce Indian Muslims to the status of second-class citizens. Now, the significance of all this, of Hindu nationalist statecraft, is that it seeks to redefine the legal grammar of the Indian state. To borrow from Christophe Shafkalo's recent book on Modi's India, we could say that what's happening is that secular democracy, a democracy where there is universal franchise, universal citizenship, universal civil and political rights, and so on and so forth, and where minority rights are protected, is being made to give way to an ethnic democracy as a result of Hindu nationalist statecraft. That is where an ethnically defined religious identity comes to be the foundation upon which belonging and citizenship rests. And the love jihad laws that have been passed in Uttar Pradesh marks the most recent phase in that process of redefining the legal grammar of the Indian states.
2: I can perhaps just um, jump in here to say a bit more about the love jihad laws passed in Uttar Pradesh as a more specific example of how these tropes and accusations of love jihad are operative in Hindu nationalist statecraft as Alf has just uh, defined it for us. And please bear with me now, Ari, if this gets a little bit detailed and complicated. So in 2020, the, the Yogi Adityanath government introduced what's called an ordinance in the state assembly in Uttar Pradesh. And it was called the Prohibition of Unlawful Conversion of Religion Ordinance 2020. So in name, this is a law that is targeting unlawful religious conversions, whatever that means. though. No? But in the media and also in much public and political discourse, this law is simply referred to as the love jihad law or the anti-love jihad law. So it's quite evident what kinds of conversions that are mainly in practice targeted here. And this is also evident if one looks at the law text itself. I mean, just for information, it's a pretty short law text of just over nine pages. It has 14 main sections that make up the first six pages. And then the remaining three pages contain three so-called schedules, and these schedules are appendices that take the shape of uh, forms that can be filled in. I'll say more about this uh, slightly later. So this ordinance in the law text explicitly includes marriage within its scope, and it lists marriage as one among many different ways in which unlawful conversion can be effected. There's one section, for example, that specifies that a marriage done for the sole purpose of unlawful conversion or vice versa by the man of one religion with the woman of another religion are to be in breach of law and hence void. Then we have another section also in this ordinance which specifies that any person who is intending to convert, whether in connection with marriage or for other reasons, Any person intending to convert must approach and inform the district magistrate at least two months in advance using a declaration form that's contained in one of these schedules that I mentioned earlier. The person performing the act of conversion must do the same thing and must also submit information about the exact date of when the conversion is to take place and so on using another form also contained in this law. Upon receiving such information, the district magistrate shall then have an inquiry conducted by the police in order to find out the real intention, the real purpose, and the real cause of this conversion of religion. Now, then, after the conversion has eventually taken place, and this may be a process that lasts for many months, The convert must then send the declaration of conversion also to the district magistrate using another form also contained in the schedules in this ordinance. And this declaration is then posted publicly On the notice board of the district magistrate's office until the convert then at a later date appears in person in front of the magistrate to confirm what is written in the declaration. Now this is a long process and this mandatory use of schedules that contain very detailed personal information about the people who are involved in the conversion, about their age, gender, occupation, Income, kin, relatives, where they live, the date and time of the conversion ceremony, the name of the priest, and so on. This is in itself a way of making the act of conversion a very long-drawn and very complicated affair. But it also makes the whole thing extremely public. All these schedules that are filled in, they must be submitted to public authorities well in advance of any actual conversion. The police are to do inquiries and so on and so forth. So this means that detailed information about impending conversion is actually in the public domain for a long time and that it's put there as a matter of state-sanctioned routine. So this in fact makes public very valuable information on the basis of which people, but also organizations of all sort uh, who are opposed to a marriage, they can mount either a legal challenge to the marriage or even a coercive or violent challenge to an interfaith marriage. Now, defenders of this law, they will object and they will say that it deals with religious conversions in the abstract. It doesn't mention any specific religion by name or it doesn't contain any references to love jihad. It doesn't mention missionary activities or any other kind of activity that could be connected to a specific religion and that's formally speaking correct but clearly this is also a dog whistle i mean it ignores the obvious facts of the political context in up in which the chief minister of the state has made it quite clear who the law is is directed against so in short we have here an ordinance that criminalizes conversions to a greater extent than was the case before And which also crucially legitimizes and even mandates the intrusion of the state and third parties in the choice of who an individual wishes to marry. And this is something that we suggest constitutes a new dimension of Hindu nationalist statecraft. If we look back at some of the examples that Alf mentioned just now, some of these previous milestones in Hindu nationalist statecraft arguably targeted what can be called the macro dimensions of state making, such as territory, demography, and citizenship. You can think about the abrogation of Kashmiri statehood that Alf brought up just recently. But with these lofty jihad laws, I think we see that Hindu nationalist statecraft has come to operate more at the micro scale of everyday gender relations and and intimacies.
1: Thank you. This is is fascinating, yet also, as you said, Kenneth, uh, quite complicated. I would like to stay with this ordinance for a bit more. You described this operating at the level of moral regulation. Can you please explain what you mean by this?
2: Yes, this refers back to the argument that we see Hindu nationalist statecraft operating at the micro-scale of everyday gender relations and intimacies. And as you say, we try to think of this as the domain of moral regulation in state formation. This is an idea that we borrow from Philip Corrigan and Derek Sayer in their theorization of state formation as cultural revolution. Among the many possible ways in which social life could be lived, they have written, State activities more or less forcibly encourage some whilst suppressing or marginalizing or eroding or undermining others. So moral regulation, in other words, renders specific ways of life natural in a way that is coextensive with a distinctive state form and the moral ethos that justifies that particular state form. And a key aspect of moral regulation, in turn, is the building of the construct of the nation as a site of primary social identification and loyalty against a foil of alien others. Now, Corrigan and Sayer that we draw inspiration from, they wrote about the Western bourgeois state. But I think in the workings of anti lofty heart laws, it's also possible to discern how moral regulation works to suppress, marginalize and undermine social intimacies that transcend the boundaries of religious communities in the Modi regime's project of merging the nation state with the Hindu people nation.
1: Now, it's often remarked that that whereas India has a, a very large number of laws, in practice they often make very little difference to how things are actually done, either because they're not seriously implemented or because nobody monitors. Now, this law against conversion came into effect in late 2020, that's
2: just over a year ago
1: now. Has it made any difference in practice?
2: Yes, it has. It's hard to estimate just how much of an impact it has made. I mean, for that, we need a more substantive fieldwork from the states in which these laws are in place, Uttar Pradesh being prominent among these states. But what we do know, and this is something we also try to discuss in the article that I mentioned earlier, is that already a few days after the enactment of this ordinance, the police in Lucknow halted a wedding ceremony between a Hindu woman and a Muslim man even though their families uh, supported the union, in which actually neither party was going to convert. So this police team that stopped the wedding ostensibly did so following a complaint by a local Hindu right-wing leader. We have another case also uh, from shortly after the implementation of the ordinance, in which a Muslim teenager was arrested under this law in Bijno district, after the father of a young Hindu girl claimed that the boy had induced his daughter to elope with him, with the intention to marry and convert her. And this unsuspecting couple was then attacked by a group of men and taken to the local police station, where the boy was then booked under the anti-conversion law and also on charges of abduction. And we have another tragic case, a woman born into a Hindu family and her Muslim husband, who had gone to register their marriage in the town of Mordabad. And here the man had ended up in jail and the young woman in a state-run shelter home. And She was uh, three months pregnant and had then suffered a miscarriage here. So in total, the first month after the the ordinance was introduced, we saw 14 cases registered and 51 arrests made. And all but one of these cases involved Hindu women allegedly pressured to convert to Islam. After 50 days, the number of cases has risen even further. Uh, We had 86 people named in so-called first information reports. Related to this ordinance. And of these, a full 79 were Muslims who were accused of enticing a woman and forcing her to convert to Islam. Now, given that the UP has a population the size of Brazil, these are perhaps small numbers in terms of number of cases, but probably it's a psychological impact through moral regulation is likely to have been a good deal greater, as it signals quite directly to Muslims that they should stay low and keep to themselves.
0: Yeah, I think these examples show us how the anti-love jihad laws that have enabled the state, via its apparatus of coercive power, to intervene in and quite literally police intimate relations in the private sphere, according to the precepts of internationalism. nationalism. But I think we also need to consider the continued presence of vigilante groups in several of these cases. Now, what this tells us is, of course, that whereas Hindu nationalist statecraft revolves around a process in which hindu ideology is transformed into law, there's not a neat shift from vigilantism in one phase, if you will, of Modi's hegemonic project to state administration in the next phase as the key modality of enforcement of Hindu nationalist ideology. Rather, in practice, what we see is that the anti-love jihad laws are brought to bear on everyday intimacies at the interface between the public authority of the state and the continued assertion of vigilante power. Now, we see this in the many ways that police authorities and vigilante groups work in tandem to intervene in interfaith relationships in Uttar Pradesh, as, as Kenneth just gave us some examples of now. So in our article, what we argue is that we can't really make a neat distinction then between a private domain of vigilantism and a public domain of state power. A more accurate reading, in our view, is that the confluence of vigilantism and police intervention in the enforcement of anti-Love Jihad laws testifies to how the hegemonic projects of dominant groups constantly crisscross the analytical divide between civil and political society in the Gramscian sense of those terms when mobilizing coercive power. This is of course especially so when we talk about Hindu nationalism as a hegemonic project. After all, this is a project which over a century-long period has embedded itself as a political force in Indian society and steadily expanded its social foundations beyond its narrow elite origins, and so it's sort of burrowed its way through India's civil society for close to a century. And on that basis, again, the Hindu nationalist movement through the Modi regime has now extended its reach so as to assert a decisive hold on state power. So we see then this confluence of vigilantism and the exercise of state power through lawmaking as being two sides of the same coin and two sides of a movement that is seeking to redefine the political grammar of Indian democracy in a way that erodes the rights of minority citizens in very fundamental ways.
1: Well, thank you both for for helping us make sense of this. Now, before we conclude, let's look ahead as well. It's quite clear that the politics of Hindu nationalism has advanced considerably under the Modi regime, both in civil society and in the domain of law and governance. Now, in your assessment, what what developments are we likely to see in the short and medium term?
2: Yeah, so just to reiterate, what we're dealing with here in our terms is the codification of Hindu nationalist ideology and specifically the ideological tenet that India is and should be a Hindu nation this codification of this into law. And I think that from the point of view of the BJP and allied organizations, this form of Hindu nationalist statecraft promises rich dividends. First, it offers an effective, sure route through which to merge the nation state with the Hindu people nation a merger that's quite central to Hindutva ideology. Second, this du route is pursued in a context in which the idea that Hinduism is the national civilization of India has come to be common sense, both in a juridical and political sense as the India scholar Peter van der Veer has recently put it. This means that both the popular but also the legal obstacles to Hindu nationalist statecraft are currently limited. And and third, and this is an insight that that we borrow in this case from my fellow Dane, Christian Lund. He notes how law works both as a solvent and as a solidifier. By this, he means that legalization seeks to secure state power backing for a claim in order to solidify this claim as a right that may then force competing claims to dissolve. Now, the enshrinement of Hindu nationalist claims to the nation in state law not only solidifies it as a right to the nation, it may also marginalize competing claims to the nation, sometimes to the point of dissolving them. So locking in Hindu nationalist claims to the nation through law actually promises to take this claim relatively safely through times of changing political fortunes for the BJP as a right to the nation, irrespective of the party in power. Um, So this, to me, I think is likely to be one of the long term consequences of, of what we are seeing today.
0: Yeah, precisely. And there are, of course, clear signs that more is to come. So in early July 2021, for example, a draft of the new Population Control Bill was published on the website of the Uttar Pradesh Law Commission. The bill was preceded by several years of vocal agitation demanding such legislation by Hindu groups in much of North and Central India. All of this was grounded in the familiar allegation that Muslims are singularly responsible for driving up the population of India. Now, of course, we know from the recent family household survey in India that population growth in India in general is simply at replacement level. So there's much that can be said in terms of uh, the the myths that these, these British go by. But anyway... The key point here is what critics have pointed out, namely that the draft bill threatens to disempower women, as well as to disproportionately affect subordinate communities. Crucially, it also feeds into and amplifies the same anti-Muslim demographic anxieties that animate the anti-Love Jihad laws and Hindu nationalist ideology more generally. So if this bill should be passed into law, it would constitute a further radical advance of Hindu nationalist statecraft in the domain of moral regulation into women's bodies, basically. So there's all possible reason to keep focusing, keep a critical focus on these developments, especially as Uttar Pradesh moved towards state elections in 2022. Thank you.
1: Arv Nilsen and Kenneth Boon thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Arve. My name is Arve Hansen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been
0: listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.